What's the most important resource that you have? If you really thought about this deeply, I think you'd come to the same conclusion that Joey and I did. It's time. In our newest book, Wealth Without Wall Street, The Three Steps to Financial Freedom Through Passive Income, we talk about how are we tracking that time? Well, what is the thing that we can do to get more of that time back? That's right. If you've ever been listening to our podcast and thought, man, it would be amazing if I could take all the things that you guys have learned over the last 10 years and just summarize them, put them in some way to easily digest them and take action, that's what this book is all about. You're not going to want to miss it. Go to wealthwithoutwallstreet.com forward slash new book and get your copy today. Russ, I feel like Steve Libman was literally in our heads before we hit record. Well, because we're so like-minded? No. No. Share mine? No, the the fact is, he basically told people you need to take the passport. The passport <laughs> challenge is your means to financial freedom. Okay. Um, I, I was in the same interview. I loved the interview. I love the fact that we were having a recap, learning kind of what he did with all the self-storage stuff that he talked about with us two years ago. We forgot about that. It was been two years. That's crazy uh, how time flies when you're having fun. But all right, tell me more. Tell me exactly what you're thinking. Well, I mean, here's the thing. He had to learn. He said he had to pivot, right? There's a, a, some opportunity from going from self-storage. I don't want to give away the whole episode. Here. Okay. But he pivoted to a different asset class because of some of the different things he learned about himself and his team as investors. Like what type of things are they good at? What type of things do they need a partner? And man, that, that to me is exactly what each of us should be doing. We should always be better understanding ourselves as an investor. I agree with you 100% there. I think what you were saying in our passport and our Pathfinder process. So there's three steps to financial freedom through passive income. Step one is creating clarity in a goal and knowing exactly what that goal is so that way you can know if you ever I'm going to attain it. And when you obtain when you it, get there, you know you got there. You, you can see it, right? You can visualize it. Step two is actually creating the pathway to getting there. And inside of that is understanding who you are as an investor. And sometimes we learn through mistakes and we learn through experience. And exactly. I, that's, I think that's what you're pointing to. Is that right? Exactly. Exactly. If you haven't already done it, you're missing out. You need to go to wealthwithoutwallstreet.com forward slash passport to start your own journey. Because what Steve is sharing today is his journey. He's seen the success, but he's also had to do the hard work and he's had to go through this same path that you can get on today. All right. And here's the last thing before we before jump into this interview, I, I want to point this out. And, and this is why we titled the podcast this, why return of your investment is more important than return on your investment. Steve, he, he slowly mentions this in the interview. You may not catch it, but listen closely as he talks about some of the people he works with who make hundreds of millions of dollars and what they are looking for when they're investing with him. I bet it's different than what you think. Joey, let's jump into this interview with Steve Libman. Welcome to the Wealth Without Wall Street podcast your guide to understanding how to get out of the Wall Street rat race and start your own mailbox money lifestyle. Now, don't let these handsome Southern draws fool you. These financial minds are teaching our country to enhance savings, increase cash flow, and create passive income, all without the help of Wall Street. 
Are you ready to break through? Now here are your hosts, Russ Morgan and Joey Murray. Welcome back. We have Steve Libman back for a second episode. Man, so glad to have you today. Yes, I love coming back and chatting with you guys. It's always fun. And this is going to be an opportunity for us to kind of get an update as we've been doing this whole year is bringing back guests to to talk about things that's happened since we last had you on. It's been, yeah, almost 18 months, I think, since we had you on the show. When we were talking last time, Steve, you were in the um, storage unit space. So we're going to go back and get an update there. But for those who didn't get a chance to listen to the first episode, quickly give us a little background. Yeah, so we... uh Right. So we've been in the commercial real estate space for about three and a half years now. Prior to that, we flipped about a thousand houses over 10 years. So we switched from residential to commercial because we hated paying taxes and it was very transactional and not passive. Now we have more passive income and we don't pay taxes. More on that to come, but that's why we made the transition. And then we built about 380,000 square feet of uh, self-storage facilities, all managed by CubeSmart. And, you know, the last podcast, we were talking about the recession resistance of self-storage. Um, great, great asset class. We actually sold all three of those facilities recently, just in the last couple of weeks. So returned about $12 million to our investors, plus all of their upside, which was a great feeling. Uh, 92% of those investors reinvested with us into another project that we did. And, and then we have about 900 units of multifamily that we have acquired since we last chatted. And that's kind of been the... The last 18 months, I think I might have had a son since we last spoke too. He's right around 18, 19 months. So I don't, I don't know if we had him or not yet. But. Well, that was a great update. I appreciate the episode. Thank you for listening. Good chat with you. <laughs> Man, I love it. That's, that's, that's a lot that's happened in 18 months. So let's, let's break down some of that. So as you said, the last time we had you on the show, we were talking recession-resistant uh, investing through self-storage. I'd love to hear that experience, right? When you were kind of in the middle of the ground up, um, going through that, you had one, I think that was almost under, almost completed. And another one was breaking ground. I think if I remember right in our episode, talk a little bit about that experience. What, what did you learn from that? Well, the first thing I learned was that, um, tortoises can help you from stop breaking ground. I think we might've touched on this the last, oh. uh, Right. The gopher tortoises. I think we told you the story about yeah, that. Yeah, I right? think so. So, you know, so that was the first thing that we learned. But, you know, it was it was an interesting um, prospect of building ground up through COVID because you had uh, townships that were shut down, inspectors that couldn't come out to get you certificates of occupancy. So it slowed down kind of the period, not necessarily to get it constructed but to get it inspected and CO'd and getting water turned on and those types of things because we were kind of mid-pandemic at that point. So mm. even though it was Florida and they opened up almost first, it still took some time because of the backlog of inspections that they had to do and limited inspectors and you couldn't be on site with the inspector. So there was just some nuances that we went through um, that slowed down kind of how that went. And then you had kind of to add insult to injury I'll tell you guys about the bad stuff, right? Because we talked about how great it was last time. So let's talk about the things that you got blindsided by. Um, And then the lease up period, right? So in self-storage, a big piece of uh, when people move and go to college and have to store things and 
none of that stuff happened, right? All, colleges were shut down nationwide. Students weren't moving. People didn't need to lease up and move their stuff into storage and then only for a couple of weeks here and there. So it delayed our lease up timeframes um, a couple of months, maybe six months behind pro forma schedule, which thank God we had enough uh, capital reserves in the bank to carry all of those things. But it did, you know, kind of delay the timeframes in which we were all projecting because who knew what was going to happen, right? Yeah, so, so it was it was re recession resistant, but not pandemic resistant. Yeah, and it's you know if it was up and running in full, then it probably would have been pandemic resistant, right? It, it just fine, yeah. was the lease up period to get to break even. You know, you have to go from maybe zero to sixty percent. And 60% occupancy was maybe your break even for your mortgage, right? 70% mortgage and yield to equity and then profit post that. But we got stalled out right around 57%, right? So it was yeah. like trying and then 58% and then 59%. And then it was like, you know, just this violent shove into let's get this thing to where it's actually stabilized. So, you know, it, it worked out fine, but we did learn a few things through it in terms of like, you know, ground up construction during... Um, a pandemic. Also, during that time frame, towards the end, right, the steel prices were shooting up, right? Oh, so wow. steel, yeah. steel prices, lumber prices, asphalt, all of those things, those prices were creeping as we were getting closer to to completion. So we were kind of chasing it, going, we got to get this finished, we got to get this finished, so that these moving targets on material costs didn't hurt the project. So, so go, go into time frame. Help me with the time frame, um, because I just realized we actually – aired this july 25th 2019 so almost two years to the date uh, that we're recording today so when you when did you start the project so this is going to be difficult because we had three of them start all within uh 12 months um so the first one was probably nearing co okay. when we last chatted the okay. second and third ones were still under construction. We got the TCO on the second one about six months ago, and we actually got the CO this week on the last one. So oh, the, wow. the sale took place because it was predicated on bulking those things together, uh -huh. right? And they bought it as an entire package. So one that was about 60% leased up, one that was about 15% leased up, and another one that was still getting to CO and still under construction but we packaged those up and sold it for uh, a little bit less than what we pro forma because we were going to hold it for a longer time frame. But based on the lease up period and, you know, the time frame that we had left on the loan and things like that, we had a good enough offer to where we said, you know what, we're going to be able to pay our investors back exactly what we were promised. We have other projects that they can move their capital into and compound their own interest. So it just makes sense for the investors. And, you know, as a fiduciary operator where you have other people's money that you're managing, you know, you have to look at the benefit to the investor first, right? So maybe we took as a company a little bit of a haircut on the profit margin. It was still great profit margin, by the way. Um, but we decided that it was more important to get those investors their capital back because, you know, we always talk about three things, right? Preservation of capital, return of capital, and return on investment in exactly that order. If you can't do numbers one and two, who cares about the return on investment? So right. <laughs> this was a great exit for us and we, we needed to return the capital and compound it so that they can get into another project. And it just, it made sense to sell it at the time. By the way, Joey, CO is COVID offering. That is not true. That's not? <laughs> no, that is not true. 
It's a certificate of occupancy. Everybody knows that. Come okay, on. Right. And, and by the way, your profit was well enough. Your son is eating well. Is that right? That's right. Okay. And, and you did you did better on this flip than you did on most of your small home flips, I'm assuming. I would argue we did better on this one particular deal than we did on maybe a year of wholesaling and house flipping. And we were doing about 150 of those a year. So just to okay. give you an idea. That's saying something. So, so it was worthwhile. All right. So now you're behind the, you got this self-storage startup behind you. Um, you mentioned now that you started closing on more and more. I think you said over 900 um, doors in the multi-family uh, space. Talk a little bit about that over the last uh, two years since we talked to you. Well, and why the shift? Yeah, and there's been a final be shift, helpful. right? So, um, so once we did these three projects, which were our first three projects with an experienced operator partner, we decided, you know, hey, we can go out and start doing some of these projects on our own. So let's go to Columbus, Ohio, which is where we like the we like the market there. We purchased a 66 unit uh, multifamily apartment complex there. We purchased an 84 unit apartment complex there and we bought a 120 unit apartment complex in Dallas. All great markets, all great deals. And we were going to be the capital. We were going to be the operator. We were going to do it all. And uh, boy, was that a mistake. <laughs> and the only reason it was a mistake, not because of the money, not because of the deals going sideways or anything like that, but because of the amount of time, effort and energy that it takes for a small team to own, operate, asset, property, and construction manage all of those deals. Remember when we sold the retail house flipping business, we said, you know, we built ourselves a very transactional job. Well, turns out when you have to do all the asset and property and construction management and things like that, you built yourself just a bigger type of job. So we kind of came to a crossroads of, do we want to be the owners and the operators or do we want to be the investors? Right. And we're investors first. So we want to look at deals. We want to look at operators. We want to look at geography and we want to invite our investor base into deals that we're investing in with experienced operators. Because if you guys are being honest with your business and I'm talking to the entrepreneurs out there, um, you have to do a SWOT assessment, right? Strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats. And the fact is, is that the first three deals were very successful because we had experienced partners. The next three deals we had some experience, but we hadn't been through full cycle deals yet. And we were now owning and operating deals. We had great mentors, obviously, that helped us when we needed to lean on somebody, which will make those three deals successful. But if we take a step back now and we say, all right, let's compare these three deals and these three deals. Where are our skill sets? Where are we better suited to manage? And what do we like doing? And what is the biggest threat to the business, to our business, to our own capital and to our investors' capital? And the biggest threat in this business is, in my opinion, um, operational expertise. And when we are looking at deals and we know that as entrepreneurs, we can always get in there and get our hands dirty and make sure that a deal works. But do we want to build that business? Is that the business that we want to be building? And for us, the answer was no. It was let's partner with very experienced operators. 20 years plus experience in the space, multiple exits, a billion dollars of assets under management, 5,000 units plus, and go and partner with those people strategically to where we can invest our own capital with them. They're the institutional operator. We will be partners with them on the deal, and then we'll bring our investor base alongside of us to partner with us. And that's been the last pivot that we've decided to do is kind of 
move from the operations side to more of the capital management side. This podcast is amazing. Almost too amazing, Russ. There's too many ideas and I don't know where to get started creating passive income. Well, here's the thing, Joey. I think one of the things you need to consider in that statement is what is it costing you to not know? What is it costing you not to take action? I love the statement that says you don't have to be great to start. You just have to start to be great. If you're struggling on where to start, you have to know what type of investor you are. Know your investor DNA. And if you want to learn more about this, you can join us in our Passport Challenge at wealthwithoutwallstreet.com forward slash Passport. Get started today. I love what you're saying here. For for the last so several months, we've been hammering this statement. Advice is garbage. Treat it as such. And the follow-up to that is that you should not take advice. You should seek mentors. You should seek experience. You should seek people who have done what you want to do and learn from that. I know we were having that exact conversation before we press record, and now you're talking about it in a completely different light, but it is perfect, right? You 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 see the value in experience, and you come alongside. Now, you're going to gain experience. You're going to gain that wisdom by being there, and you're hands-on, so it's not like you're just delegating it off to somebody else and say, you do it. You're going to be there to gain it along the way, but it's amazing what you can borrow versus pay retail when you have somebody like that at, at your disposal. That's really well, cool. And, and I'm going to say the second thing I didn't, I didn't even see what you were talking about, Russ, but that's <laughs> shocking, by the way. <laughs> the other part is the thing, other thing we hammer is there's no good or bad investments. It's all about who you are as an investor, right? What's your investor DNA? What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? What are, does the investment require of you? And do you need a partner for the things that you're going to be weakest in? So I love how you identified that just over your experiences here. And then you said, operationally, this is the biggest hurdle. Let's get with the right people. And if you're, as you're listening to this conversation, the takeaway is you need to figure out who you are as an investor, right? Just because Steven's been super, um, uh, blown away with all these different investments he's been doing doesn't mean they're good for you, right? You have to figure out who you are. That's why we built our Passport and our Pathfinder courses to help you figure out your vision and then subsequently what type of investor you are so that you can then narrow it down and go deep on that one thing that you're the best at. So anyways, I, I just, I don't want to miss the opportunity that we need to take advice from you. I shouldn't say advice. We, sh we need to take your experience and apply it to who we are as investors. But, That's true. all I'm saying. All right. And I know there wasn't a question in there. It was just a restatement of my statement. Good. Two comments. Good on you. I appreciate okay. that. All right. Let's talk about why is this important now, though, right? Because we're, we're sitting here in July of 2021. Um, there still is the, the pandemic atmosphere, right? And there's lots of things that you're learning from this. Why do you think what you're applying now is super important and can apply to the person listening? Yeah. So, I mean, for us, now that we have institutional partners, right? I mean, this 384 units that we're closing tomorrow is a $42 million acquisition, much more of a large complex, much more stable of an operator. It, our partner in this deal, by the way, has a 40-year track record. They've been in business for 40 years. So they've been in business longer than I've been alive. They've 
exited uh, almost a billion dollars worth of deals. They have a billion dollars of assets under management, 7,000 units of assets under management. And here's the cool thing, right? We're partnering with them on this deal. They already own it. They already operate it. We're doing what they call a recapitalization on it. So we're taking the owner's equity out. He, he had to execute on a deal very quickly. He threw $10 million at it. He bought a $40 million project and they've been operating this deal for the last 18 months through COVID. Nice. So we are like anti-volatility, right? In our business, that's why we like storage. We don't like the, you know, recession proof, recession resistant type of asset classes. Well, I'll tell you how much more uh, stable of an environment you're walking into when you know the operator, you're seeing all the financials, historical and current on a weekly basis, seeing how they change. It's 97% occupied, 100% pre-leased on the tail end of a pandemic. I feel very comfortable putting my money in with this operator, right? And that was the difference is we had some stumbling blocks through uh, our own projects that we had to go through with COVID. Couldn't, couldn't evict on certain timeframes. We had people that wouldn't leave. We had a bunch of hurdles that we had to clear. And on the backside of it, we're doing fine, but we, we recognize that operational expertise. How did these people stay at 97% economic occupancy through a pandemic? How do they get people to stay and pay through that? Well, I know my economic occupancy dipped at least 20%. Right. So we started looking at this in a way that we were like, okay, so here's the experience. Here's how they navigate these things. We can learn from the asset management piece of it and we can keep our, our money safe and our investors money safe. And, you know, to get to the, why we did that, it's just very simple. It just makes a lot more sense to allow the, to, to allow everybody to stay in their lane. Right. Like, I'm really good at talking to investors and educating them about the opportunities that we have in this space versus going out and making sure that, um, you know, our property managers are making sure that they're re-signing leases 90 days out from, from um, lease expiration, right? It's just a completely different animal. So when you find people that you can partner with that do that, it kind of keeps everybody in their lane and, every, and it's, a, it's a great compliment to each other. I love it. I love it. So somebody listening to you right now is saying, how does this apply to me? What, what can I do with this information to gain financial freedom? What would be one thing that you would, you would pass along to them at this point? So, you know, it goes back to what both of you guys said before, which is you have to figure out what type of investor you want to be. Not everybody wants to be an active investor. Not everybody wants to swing for the fences. Most of our very high net worth individuals are not looking for 20% returns. They're looking for what we talked about before, right? Preservation of capital, return of capital, and then return on investment last. And, you know, if you are looking to deploy capital in an active way, then there's a million ways to do that, right? So I'm not the guy to talk to about how to do that. We are the guys to talk to about how to passively invest into these projects so that you can create, preserve, and pass on generational wealth. And the ways that you do that, first and foremost, are finding operators that you know, like, and trust. And it literally is in that order. Like, you have to go know some people. You got to go talk to people in the space that are operating and say, hey, you know, I, how do I get to know you? What's your values? How are your core values fitting into your investment thesis? Right. I don't think a lot of people think about that, but that's important because that dictates the type of deals that they do. They, it dictates their why. Right. So you need to know as an investor, my why as an operator, like, why am I doing what we're doing? 
And then I need to understand from an investor perspective, why are they doing right? So what you guys offer in terms of getting to the investor DNA and figuring out why and what drives you as an investor and what type of investor you want to be super important because you don't know who to partner with until you know your own lens right. as an investor. Right. So I think the biggest takeaway that we've had in our entire career is find like minded people. Right. Find your tribe, as Seth Godin talks about, and figure out how to partner with those folks, be aligned in um, in both value orientation and investor perspective and then go build that machine together. Right. I mean, I, we have a couple hundred people in our investor community now and the return on investment, I would argue based on our last um, survey that we took of our people that have been invested with us, return on investment is very low on the reasons that they invest with us. Right. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it, which is interesting to me because I thought that that would be kind of top, top line, but it's not, it's more uh, aligned with the donor advised funds that giving, you know, giving is a big part of our business and to nonprofits and all of these different nuances, the communication, right? They like the fact that we have an investor portal where we communicate with them on a weekly basis and, you know, just these different things. So go out, interview a bunch of different operators that are in a bunch of different spaces, try to figure out why you like, you know, different active investments, different passive investments. You know, one of the biggest drivers for us is how do we get the most tax advantage type of investments that we can, right? Because 12 or 15% in a long-term capital gain is great. 10 or 15% in a tax-free environment is even better, right? So how do you figure out those tax-free environments? And, you know, are people uh, personally invested in that? Are they trying to personally do that for their own families? And does that align with your values? So a lot to take away, I think, from what we're talking about. That's awesome. Yeah, I love I love all those. So, Steve, if we're if we're looking ahead for Integrity Holding Group, what is the future look like? What what's kind of the trajectory that you are are uh, looking forward to? So, in the short term, right, we're going to not do ground up construction, um, and that's not to say that the that operators that are doing that are doing anything wrong. We just are not comfortable with the moving target of material costs right now in a post-pandemic world or a pre-post-pandemic world, right. <laughs> however you want to say it. I mean, you know, Delta variant now is spiking and, you know, so who knows is my point. What, um, what material uh, producers will get shut down again potentially or will lag time. I mean, I'm still waiting on a stove from like six months ago, right? So like that's still lagging. So I'm a little concerned about material costs and material timelines when we're doing ground up construction. So we're hitting the pause button on ground up construction personally in the business. And we are looking for more class C plus to B plus multifamily apartment complexes, which is mostly workforce housing. We're trying to create uh, an affordable, not affordable in the um, governmental sense where it's like kind of low income. We're looking for literally affordable housing in what is a, crazy market right now for people that are buying where, you know, the, the nurses and the teachers and the police officers of the world have a place where they can rent reasonably. Those are the types of complexes that we're looking for. We're not doing heavy lifts, meaning we're not doing 50% vacant properties right now because again, material costs and, and labor shortages tie into how well you can reposition those assets. So we're looking for you know, 95% and above, 90% and above stabilized asset classes with some value add that we can create. And we're looking to take down 
somewhere between two and $300 million of assets a year over the next three years. So I think in year four, we should be getting to about a billion dollars under management if we're hitting our metrics. Man. Well, Steve, this has been great to to catch up with you. I know that you're in our community and you've been great over the years to be able to connect with people in there. So if you're uh, wanting to find out more about Steve, I advise you to go in there. Uh, you can D, uh, DM him or direct message him uh, in the app. Uh, Steve, if they want to follow you online somewhere, where would you send them to? Yeah, um, you can. I mean, you can go to integrityhg.com and sign up for our investor club if you want to just get our newsletter and some updates on some deals that we're doing and things like that. If you want to follow us um, online, you can follow us on Facebook or Instagram. And uh, recently, because I was told to, I'm a little bit old for it, but we did start a TikTok page. So, you know, we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna be doing some uh, some dancing and some real estate investing advice at the same time. Oh, nice. Well, I heard I heard your young uh, singer in the background, so maybe you guys could do some videos together. Oh, Noah's always about banging on the doors. He loves he loved to be on the on the interviews. He likes to jump in and say hi to everybody. So <laughs> I love it. Well, Steve, as always, it's a pleasure, and uh, thank you as well for listening to this episode. And have a fantastic day. This has been the Wealth Without Wall Street podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show to break free of the Wall Street mindset and begin building wealth on your own terms in places you understand so that your wealth will never run dry. See you next episode.